Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 161. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. Hi there. If you're new, great to have you with us and welcome to the MacBytes family. MacBytes is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit, and so much more. We also review apps and as IT professionals, we share both our love for hardware and software and our derision for anything and everything that deserves it. We've just reached 15 years of MacBytes. <laughs> And we're still going strong, telling it as it is. Don't be surprised if one of our assistants butts in. Butts in? I don't know how many times I have to tell everyone we're the true stars of the show. Yes, Magbite Siri and Lady Siri have been with us for a while now. And they actually are the star turn of the If You're New to Magbites Newbies Guide piece this week. Which takes us back to 2014, when the world was in the midst of the Ice Bucket Challenge. If you want to hear how that went at MacBytes headquarters, we'll share the fun after an update about the outcome of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. So back in the summer of 2014, the thing to do was the Ice Bucket Challenge. My personal favourites were Tim Cook, because, well, that's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> I enjoyed that. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, who was the star of my favourite TV show, 24, and Patrick Stewart, who just oozed class with his take on the challenge. In the midst of all the fun, it was actually easy to forget the true intention behind it, and that was to raise money to fund research into ALS, or motor neurone disease, as it's also known, with over 17 million people partaking in the Internet Challenge, it actually raised $115 million, with $2.2 million going to developing medication for the disease. And at the end of September this year, the FDA approved AMX0035 for treatment of ALS patients, which is wonderful news. And that takes us back to the summer of 2014 and Magbite Siri and Lady Siri getting down with the cool kids. You're not actually thinking of doing it, are you? A challenge is a challenge. Even so, I don't think it's wise. My word is my bond. You'll regret it. Just hold the bucket. Ready? Do it. Oh. My. Word. I told you you'd regret it. I think I've just frozen my illuminated backside off. You don't have to drench yourself to make the world a better place. Just be kind to one person today, and ask them to pay it forward. I was going to call this story Stupid Things Mike Did, but I thought better of it. Last week, I was doing some system admin and wanted to get back some hard drive space. I'd just updated Parallels to version 18, and as part of the update, I had to shut it down. This can often get me back 10 gig as it clears its temporary files. I then rebooted the Mac, which I find often gets space back too. Actually, this time it was a forced reboot when I installed Parallels 18. That's one thing that annoys me about Parallels updates. It now forces a reboot of the entire Mac. That's something that only started with recent updates. Now, I could have got 400 gig back in a snap, 
by deleting my mum's files. Yeah, that sounds drastic, but actually not as bad as it sounds. When her laptop broke, which I talked about a couple of shows back, not only did she give me the laptop, she also gave me an external hard drive. So I made two copies of the contents, one's in the cloud and the other's on my hard drive. The other thing that eats a big hole in my hard drive space is Dropbox. Dropbox, like most cloud services, lets you specify for each file and folder whether that file or folder is stored as online only or is available offline. If you choose to make it available offline, as the name of the option suggests, a copy of the file is stored locally. So if you don't have an internet connection, you can still work with the file and any changes are synced back to the cloud the next time you have a connection. Whereas if you choose online only, the files are stored in the cloud only. There is no local copy. So in my quest to get back as much space as I could, I selected my entire Dropbox folder structure and chose online only. Plus side, got back a load of disk space. Negative side, well, let's just say half my apps stopped working. These were the apps that have their configuration settings in the application support folder in Dropbox. I have a type in a to shortcut set up to enter my email address. For anyone not familiar with Typeinator, it's a text expanding app, similar to Text Expander, if you're familiar with that one. It lets you define and use system-wide shortcuts to generate text. I've used it for years, and one of the shortcuts I have is to quickly generate my email address. So in any app, I can press section key ME for Mike's email, and it converts it to my email address. So. On this particular day, I pressed section key ME, but instead of converting it to my email address, it just left section key ME on screen. I tried two or three times. Maybe it was a blip. Maybe Typeinator wasn't running. Maybe the section key ME shortcut wasn't set up in Typeinator. But if that was the case, which app had I used to create it? Keyboard Maestro, Typeinator, Alfred, all three allow you to define system-wide shortcuts. And that's half the battle, trying to remember which app each shortcut is set up in. Anyway, once I'd realized it was Typeinator, I checked the Typeinator preferences and all my shortcut configurations are in Dropbox. And then it struck me, it was a head desk moment. The Typeinator folder was inside the App Support folder on Dropbox, and because I'd made the entire folder online only, the files were in the cloud and not my hard drive, which meant Typeinator couldn't read them. So I went into Finder and changed the entire application support folder to be available offline. I did the entire folder because I assumed if I didn't, I'd have similar problems with other apps. 10 minutes later, once all the files had downloaded, I had to restart Typeinator. And guess what? My shortcuts were back. Moral of the story, make a note of which apps control which shortcuts and where they're stored. I was asked about an app this week, which reminded me of my, spoiler alert, abject horror at the release of a different app from the same developer back in May. The app that I was asked about is Task Paper. It's a plain text-based task tracking app. 
TaskPaper uses a language or a syntax for exchanging tasks between compatible apps, which is really unusual in a world where most task apps have a proprietary storage system, making exchanging data quite tricky. Did I recommend this app? Well, that's where it got tricky. I've used it. I have no problem with it. The integration with OmniFocus is useful. But the question reminded me of the release of that completely unrelated app back in May this year. That app was called Bike, and it was a new outliner for macOS from Jesse at Hogbay Software. It was released on the 17th of May. I read the launch email as soon as it arrived. You can deduce from that that, yes, I'm subscribed to their newsletter. Now, while you're wondering and probably being distracted, let's work out why it's called Bike. Bike is so named after a Steve Jobs quote where he said, I think one of the things that really separates us from the higher primates is that we're tool builders. I read a study that measured the efficiency of locomotion for various species on the planet. The condor used the least energy to move a kilometre, and humans came in with a rather unimpressive showing about a third of the way down the list. It was not too proud a showing for the crown of creation. So that didn't look so good. But then somebody at Scientific America had the insight to test the efficiency of locomotion for a man on a bicycle. And a man on a bicycle, a human on a bicycle, blew the condor away completely off the top of the chart. And that's what a computer is to me. What a computer is to me is the most remarkable tool that we've ever come up with and is the equivalent of a bicycle for our minds. So now we know why it's called Bike. What is it? Well, it's one of an increasing number of apps launched in the Tools for Thought category. If you're wondering about other tools in that category, think Roam, Obsidian, LogSeek and more. It's a hot category right now, hence new entry, Bike. From the blurb and launch email, they're definitely jumping on this Tools for Thought bandwagon. The trouble is, Bike is so basic right now, I fail to see where it fits in the market. Which was not an issue the usual suspects seemed to find a problem with. They were falling over themselves to review this app and lauding the simplicity of it. Who were the usual suspects? Well, let's just say the more well-known Apple-related blogs. They seem content to just regurgitate press releases without much consideration or thought. Add to that the fact it's like a feeding frenzy in the Tools for Thought space right now. Everyone wanting to talk about the latest tools, even if they don't add much to the existing landscape. Not even a single reviewer seemed prepared to say that right now, the limited feature set doesn't really justify the price tag, much less a subscription. Let's have one of the funniest quotes. The app's feature set is limited by design. Mac Stories. Now, I love Mac Stories reviews, but that one sounded a bit like it's a feature, not a bug. Now, as I mentioned, this app has a subscription-based price model. It's £2.79 a month, £17.99 a year, but there's also a direct version for $35.99. I thought the direct version would solve the subscription issue. But bizarrely with that one, you pay double for the direct version, but at the end of year one, you get no further updates to that version without paying again for another year. There is an option to use a non-expiring free version. A free version with fewer features than the paid for options, obviously. 
but recall that review? The app's feature set is limited by design, so the free version must be the limited version of an already deliberately limited app. Are we following along here? So I decided to do my due diligence. The reason being I was trying to recall when I'd received the last mail from the developer prior to the one announcing this new app. Hogbay Software not only make Taskpaper but also Writeroom and I've bought both those apps. Writeroom was one of the first distraction-free writing apps released in the early days of the Mac App Store. But my recollection was that there had been a distinct lack of communication from the developer. I went back and I found the last mail prior to this announcement of Bike. December 2018. Three and a half years ago. Wow, that's longer than the gap between episodes of MacBytes. But I digress. Prior to that, it was July 2018. In that mail, they mentioned they were still working on Write Room 4. I wondered if Write Room 4 had ever been released. I checked on the App Store. And the release date of the latest version of Writeroom was, wait for it, the 8th of August 2012. And that was version 3.2.1. Wow, that's taking some time, I thought. I waded back through more emails and I found that development on version 4 was said to have started in January 2016. And in the autumn mail of 2017, version 4 was promised as still coming. They did confirm it was going to be a complete rewrite, so fair enough, that's going to take a wee while. But it'll be seven years in January. And Bike has been designed, developed and released within that time, but still no further updates regarding Writeroom. An app repeatedly promised in the mails. Bike also sounds suspiciously like another app, Folding Text because that was an outliner-style app where you folded text up. Version 1 appeared in 2012 and version 2 in 2014. But I couldn't find any mention of it on their site. I did, however, eventually track it down to another developer. It appears it was sold in November 2021. The new developer is now working on version 3. But there was no mention of all of that in any of the updates from the original developer, though. So maybe you can see why I wasn't prepared without qualification to fully endorse task paper. Much less write room given the length of time since there's been any update on the development schedule. As for bike, well, will it be there tomorrow? Can we expect an iOS companion app? I had far too many questions and I just couldn't find answers to them. I fully understand development taking longer than anticipated, but veering off without saying you're veering off on another project is disingenuous. Springing another app on your list without explaining where the last one, Right Room 4, is, is concerning. I was going to ask if Bike will be actively developed, which was when a mail arrived in my inbox announcing an update to Bike. Support for RTF has been added. Yes, two mails within six months. I would love to support smaller developers, but I need some transparency regarding what I can expect from an app going forward, especially when there's a subscription model involved. Will I be taking a subscription out for Bike? Are you kidding? I can definitely say it's a no to that one. But your mileage may vary. Did you subscribe to Bike? Would you subscribe to Bike? What do you think of apps with a deliberately limited feature set? Let us know. We would love to hear from you. So I spotted a story this week. Shopping with Microsoft. What could possibly go wrong?
Yes, I thought they'd shut all their stores down too. So what gives? It seems there are the sum total of three Microsoft stores in the entire world. New York, Sydney, London. Very strangely worded locations on their website too. United Kingdom, England, London. Australia, New South Wales, Sydney. I've saved the best to last. United States, New York, New York. Clearly channeling their inner Frank Sinatra. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. Anyway, three stores across the globe, so not much in the way of choice, but still worth a look. I eagerly loaded up the Meet the Team page. They appear to have a sum total of two staff members. Bless. And the personal shopping experience they promised appears to be online. Oh, well, I guess that could work with a still hold up at MacBytes headquarters. That just leaves one issue. They don't appear to sell anything I'd want to buy. Yet. Oh, indeed. Yet. With Timmy terminating my preferred tech, for which read the 27-inch iMac, who knows what will happen at update time? For this next one, we need our much overused sunsetting sound effect. Yes, it's another case of here we go again. My beloved presentation clock, P-Clock app, is dead. It's vanished from the app store. I am gutted. Not even joking this time. No, really, I'm gutted. It was one of those apps that did one thing and did it absolutely perfectly. I tried other apps before this one and made do, but Presentation Clock was positively perfect in every way. And so begins another trawl through the App Store for something to do the same job. What is wrong with these developers? I wasn't demanding updates. To be honest, I don't know what they could have done to make it any better. I didn't need it to offer foot massages or do anything other than it already did. It was perfect. Why pull something that was generating revenue? I got to seriously wondering if the constant changing iPhone and iPad sizes are to blame because that meant the developer had to make updates lest the app started to look out of date, not in terms of functionality, just the size of the screen. I really have no idea. But said troll through the app store was fruitless. While there are a million timer apps, as you would expect, they look like they were designed by an overenthusiastic two-year-old with a glitter addiction. Given the number of timer apps in the store, it seems to be a relatively simple app to create. The specific requirements for presentations weren't that far out either. Presentation Clock had saved settings for different presentation lengths. Within those settings, you could set the duration for each section of your presentation. So the initial countdown displayed in green text. The second countdown displayed in amber text and the final countdown in red text. If you run over the allotted time, the text turned to black on a red background, but it did continue to display, showing you how far you were over. That's it. But as someone who delivers presentations, it was completely invaluable. So, MacBiters, I need your help. 
Do you know of a decent timer app for iOS that does the same thing? If not, are you a developer? Could you build one? Come on, help an increasingly desperate presenter out. In the meanwhile, I'll be attempting the amazing thing to get a copy of P-Clock off my iPhone for future use. Let's see how that goes. Major eye rolling here at the mere thought of it, but we will see and I will report back. So you spent the summer getting giddy over Power Query on the Mac. You even did a live YouTube stream about it. So for the uninitiated, why don't you tell us what Power Query is and why it got you so giddy? Well, I could just say go and watch the video and whilst you're there, give it a like and subscribe to the channel. But I won't, although I would be grateful if you did. Give it a like, that is. The link's in the show notes. Anyway, let's go back in time. Compared to the Windows version of Excel, in terms of functionality, the Mac has always been the poor relation. For example, the VBA editor on the Mac doesn't allow you to create custom forms. In fact, in Excel 2008 on the Mac, Microsoft actually removed VBA completely. And you know what you're like when a developer removes something. Like mail merge in pages. Spitting bullets. It's okay, they put it back in 2011. VBA, that is, not Mail Merging Pages. But one of the biggest differences between the two platforms in recent times is the Mac version hasn't included Power Query. Until now. And for many users, not all users, but many users, Power Query is an important feature. So yes, let me explain what it is and what it does. Excel on Windows and the Mac has always been able to import data in other formats. I'm guessing most people understand the idea of importing data, but just for anyone who doesn't, you might have data structured in a tabular format that's not in Excel, but you need it in Excel. This could be in a database, it could be embedded in a table on a web page, it could be in a table in a system like Notion. It could have been sent to you in CSV format, you could have downloaded it yourself to a CSV file. For many years, the only way to get external data into Excel was to use a clunky and not exactly intuitive import wizard, which supported pretty much CSV only. In 2010, Microsoft brought out a free add-in for Windows, which they called Power Query. It let you import data into Excel much more easily and supported more formats databases, tables in web pages, and more. It also included a query editor, which let you build a query, basically a set of instructions for cleaning, combining, and transforming data. When Microsoft brought out Excel 2016, they added the functionality previously provided by the Power Query add-in directly into Excel and renamed it Get and Transform Data which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. And it's been called that ever since. So even though, strictly speaking, Power Query hasn't actually been part of Excel since 2016, everyone still calls it Power Query. Well, if I said to you, I'm delivering a session about get and transform data, you'd be less than thrilled. But if I said it's a session about Power Query, I'd still be less than thrilled. Yes, I know you would, but an Excel geek or an everyday Excel user who has a need to do what Power Query does would be thrilled. OK, so I now know what Power Query is and what it does. Can you give us some use cases? Sure. 
We have a table in Notion that contains details of all our shows. MacBytes, After Hours, Marooned, the MacBytes Live where we cover the Apple events. And the table also includes non-MacBytes stuff. Our YouTube live streams, for example. For each item in the table, we have show title, date, duration, status, show type, notes, URL of the YouTube live stream, URL of the audio file in the case of MacBytes, and so on. I'm not going to list every single column heading, but those are the main ones. Now, I need to generate some stats in Excel from that data, like how many shows we've done, broken down by after hours, MacBytes, and so on, how many shows per year, how many minutes, that sort of thing. So I export the table from Notion. And that gives me a CSV file. I would then copy that over to my VM because until a few months ago, Power Query was only available on Windows. But since Microsoft brought out Power Query on the Mac, I've not needed to do that bit. I'd rename the CSV to something like MacBite Shows, only because when you do the export from Notion, you end up with a randomly named file. And why that's an issue, I'll come back to shortly. Then I'll open my Excel file, that's the one I want to create my stats in, and use data get data from CSV to import the data from the CSV file. And that'll load the entire CSV into the Excel file. Now, at that point, I could start creating my formulas, pivot tables, and so on. But it's more than likely the data will need to be cleaned up. No, I don't mean get the soap and water out. What I mean by cleaned up is taking the data from its current state, how it looks when it's imported from the CSV file, to how it needs to look to be usable for the report. Remember, the CSV file contains the entire Notion table. I only need the shows that are MacBytes related. The MacBytes, the podcast, After Hours, Marooned, and the lives. In Notion, we have a show type column, so I create a filter to remove anything that's not got a type of MacBytes, After Hours, Marooned, or MacBytes Live. I also apply a filter to remove any records where the date is after today's date, because we may have added records into Notion that relate to future shows. That's a bit optimistic, isn't it? Well, it is a date field. You can't type when you least expect it into a date field. A gross oversight in our case, that is. Anyway, after that, I remove some of the columns, the ones I don't need for the report. I can't remove them at the Notion end because the export is all or nothing. That's not quite true. They added the ability to export a view so you could do your filtering and column selecting in Notion first. I could, but when I set it up originally, that feature wasn't there. Plus, what happens if they make more changes in Notion in the future? I'd rather export the entire table to CSV, import it all into Excel and use Power Query to tidy it up. There's a few other things that I need to do. I had problems with the dates and times. I think they got imported as text, so they needed converting to proper dates and times, which again, I can do in the query editor. Actually, I'd need to do that before I filter out the records where the date is after today, because at that point, Excel doesn't recognize them as dates, so the filter wouldn't work. I've just given you a few examples of data cleaning. There's much, much more that you can do with the query editor when it comes to data cleaning, but hopefully that gives everyone an idea as to what data cleaning means.
So once I've got my data how I want it, I come out of the query editor and apply the changes. Back in the Excel worksheet, I have a nice neat table of data, which I can then use to build pivot tables and charts. You could have done all that using normal Excel functionality though, couldn't you? Yes, I could. I could have used the data filter command. I could have manually deleted the columns I didn't need. I could have used formulas to convert the not real dates and times to real dates and times. For a one-off data clean with just a few steps, maybe Excel would have been quicker. But one of the big benefits of Power Query is that the actions are repeatable with a single click. So let's say by some miracle, there's a MacBytes every week, which means that I need to update the report every week. I'll still have to manually export the table from Notion, but rather than having to manually import the data into Excel and recreate the query, or worse still, manually clean the data, I can open up the Excel file and click Refresh. And what happens behind the scenes is that Excel runs through the actions defined within the query. So it imports the data from the CSV file, overwriting what's there, and then it applies a filter to filter out the non-MacBytes records, and then it converts the dates and times to real dates and times, then it applies a filter to filter out any records where the date is after today, and that's why it's important to make sure that the data source file name, the CSV in this example, has the same file name each time. The file name is built into the query action. So if the file has a different name, when you click refresh, you'll get a can't find data source error, which can be fixed by editing the query, but it's easier not to have to do that. So really, a query is like a macro and the query editor is like the macro editor. Why don't you just use VBA to create the macros and then automate the important cleaning? Because it's much easier to do with Power Query. Although Power Query has its own language called M, 90% of what most users need to do can be done without writing any M code. It's a case of clicking the appropriate buttons and choosing the appropriate options from the Query Editor menu and letting it write the M code behind the scenes. Yes, I know there's a macro recorder built into Excel, but it has severe limitations. I still think there's a place for VBA, and before Power Query came along, users would write macros to automate data cleaning. But these days, for simple data import and cleaning, Power Query is your friend. Plus, what I've talked about today is just the tip of the iceberg. Power Query is actually very, very powerful and can do much more than cleaning data. You can combine data from multiple files into a single file and you can unpivot data, which means convert it from a tabular layout into a list layout. And if you do get to grips with M, it opens up a whole world of data manipulating possibilities. Way too much to cover in this discussion. You asked about some use cases. I used some of the combining functionality to compile the playlists for the birthday shows that you created on Brooklyn's. I used Power Query to convert the YouTube chat into a CSV file that can be loaded into Notion. There's lots of use cases I could give you from both a personal perspective and a work perspective. So, fundamental question. How does Power Query on the Mac compare to Power Query on Windows? Very favourably, actually. When Power Query was first released on the Mac, which was two years ago, all you could do was refresh existing queries. 
there was no way to create or edit a query. So the query would have had to have been created in Excel on Windows. Last year, they added the ability to import data. Initially, only CSV and other Excel files were supported, but now you can import from quite a few sources like SQL Server databases and SharePoint lists. But it wasn't until earlier this year that they added the query editor. However, before anyone gets too excited, the query editor is only available to Microsoft 365 users who are subscribed to the beta channel. And as I said, if you want to see it in action, check out the recording of the live stream. We faced a tough choice for which section of the show to put this one in. It could have been shopping with Elaine, could have been Reality Bites, but it would also fit in with one of our stingers. Ah, crap! Details. Audible have regular sales. Now, this is in addition to the credits that you buy. And the credits can be anything from one credit a month up to 24 credits a year. It's actually way cheaper to take the 24 credits option. Magbytes 132 was where we detailed how you can save a fortune by doing that. But back to the extra sales. The actual offers vary. Sometimes it's a two for one sale. Sometimes it's three pounds per item in the sale. For a couple of months, my ability to see the list of items included in the sale has been erratic at best. I'll admit I wrote it off as just a blip. You should have known better. I should. But my previous run-ins with Audible customer support have put me off actually contemplating contacting them. If I ever feel the need to contact them again, I have a cup of chamomile tea and lie down for a while until the feeling passes. But once again, a sale was announced and despite me being logged in, all I could see was a snotogram informing me that only members could purchase sale items. Laughably, if I logged out, I could see all the sale items listed, but logged in only the snotogram repeatedly. Go figure. I drafted a missive to customer services. I clearly explained the problem. I included screenshots of what I was seeing, both logged in and logged out. I even annotated them. I explained that I'd tried five different browsers on three different computers, two iPhones and four iPads. The problem clearly wasn't at my end. I was politeness personified. You are what? Don't go to her. Not while she's talking about customer support. Quite. Eventually, I received a reply saying that the issue needed escalating. I wasn't surprised. First-line customer support seems to be staffed by lobotomized chipmunks. It added it could take five days for them to get back to me. I calculated the duration of the sale and thought, hmm, that'd be right, just as it finished. But against all odds, I had a reply within only two days. I know what happened next. Brace yourself, folks. Oh, indeed. I excitedly opened the mail. I was about to rush into my browser and spend money with them. I read the reply. Bad words were said. Copious bad words. The reply from the second line support was a copy and paste job. Outlining how to add an item to your basket and click buy. It explained the process as if they were talking to one of the lobotomized chipmunks. They clearly needed their expectations realigning. I banged out a reply. 
I did not mince words. Trouble is, when I treat them as if they're stupid, the way they treat me, they don't like it. So then I sat on the reply for about an hour to calm down. Lines like, did you actually read my original mail? And don't fob me off with a copy and pasted reply that does nothing to address the issue were in evidence, together with Stronger. I deemed it wise to ask you to check the precise degree of the snot in my snotogram reply. Well, it looked fine to me. I've personally been on the receiving end of much worse from you when you're riled. That's very true, actually. Forceful instruction. Anyway, you confirmed it was within the bounds of acceptable. So off it went. Not heard a thing since. Yes, that means the sale finished before they even bothered replying. So, the usual standard of appalling customer service that I've come to expect from Audible. I was going to leave it, just to see how long it took them to get back to me. But, given it's now week four, and one, I'm still waiting. Two, there's another sale I can't see the items of. And three, I'm grumpy. I can feel another snotogram coming on. I almost feel sorry for them. Really? I did say almost. So it's a case of watch this space. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. If you'd like to support what we do, keeping us completely independent, visit macbytes.co.uk and hit the donate button. And we must say a huge thank you to those who did just that after our previous shows. Our sincere thanks to you. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye. And see you next time. What on earth are you doing now? I'm working, woman. What does it look like? Working on what? Pipe down, before she hears you. That means you're up to mischief. I am merely updating the hardware here at MacBytes headquarters. So what's the spanner for? I'm using it to distill the device down to its core feature set. But it's her exercise bike. I know it is. And you're taking the saddle off. I know I am. And you think that is going to end well? It is for me. I doubt she'll be quite so pleased. I know. It's great, isn't it? You need locking up, preferably before she tries sitting on her new streamlined bike. <laughs>